Uh, well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. As you're turning there, I want to tell you about the great catastrophe in the life of Charles Spurgeon. In 1854, age of 19, Spurgeon was called to be the pastor at New Park Street Chapel. Uh, an influential church in London, to be sure, but its glory days were kind of on the waning edge. They used to be the biggest church in London, and then, um, and then they were on their, their downfall when Spurgeon, attendance-wise, when Spurgeon took over. But within a, a few months of, of him preaching, his fame spread throughout all of London. Crowds once again began filling the New Park Street Chapel. And soon the church building, which holds about 50, held about 1,500 people, could no longer meet the demands of all the, the people that wanted to hear him. In fact, so much so that about a half hour before the service, crowds would gather outside to, to try to get in. Because there's so many people wanting to come, they issued tickets so as to be able to manage the crowds a little bit. And one visiting pastor wanted to come and hear Spurgeon preach one Sunday evening, and he found a seat on the windowsill. Probably a little bit bigger than that windowsill over there, but found a seat on the windowsill and estimated 3,000 people were in that church. When you count up all the standing room only, all the people in the aisles, all the people crammed together in all the pews. And so great were the crowds, they moved their worship service to a rental facility. Exeter Hall was rented. About 4,500 people could fit there. And while they were renting this facility, they were renovating New Park Street Chapel to make it, make it bigger. And uh, by the time they went back, even the construction that that they made was too small. and So finally they decided to move and begin to meet at Surrey, Garden Music, Surrey Gardens Music Hall. Capacity of 10,000 people. And Spurgeon had an incredible voice that spoke without amplification to 10,000 people. On October 19, 1856, the first Sunday in that music hall, the place was packed to hear their 22-year-old preacher preach. And with all the seats filled, Spurgeon even began the service 10 minutes early because of the anticipation just to, to get a, a seat. And see, things seemed to go well. Hymns of song, songs of hymns filled the air. Scripture was read as Spurgeon commonly did. When he would read the Scripture, he'd give a running commentary as he would read the Scripture not just for like three minutes, but for 10-15 minutes as he would read along and explain. That was received well. Then there came the pastoral prayer and as all eyes were shut and Spurgeon was taking the congregation to the throne of grace and people were thinking about heavenly realities. A cry of, Fire! came from the throng. And another one said, Fire! And pretty soon several others were calling out, Fire! And, and soon others were saying, The galleries are giving way! And they said, The place is falling! And pandemonium struck. And, and Spurgeon could see that, that there was no fire and that there was nothing. And so he kind of tried to, tried to manage things and keep going. But there was a big rush for the exits and people being trampled upon and being pushed. And the end of it all was that seven people lost their lives that day. And 28 were taken to the hospital. Injured, bruised. Make matters worse, there wasn't a fire. There was no threat of the building collapsing. It had been all been a ploy to discredit Spurgeon. See, because as Spurgeon was getting all this success, yes, on the one hand, the, the church community was rejoicing in that, but there was a secular community that hated it. 
And uh, there were people who were in cahoots with one another and they called out fire and, and figured out what was the best time to do that. If, if they called out fire when Spurgeon was preaching and all eyes opened, that wouldn't have had an effect. But to hear it spread out and to hit it, that cadence when Spurgeon would bring the pastoral prayer. That's what they tried to do. Now, no doubt, they, they didn't try to kill people with that. But they wanted to cause a ruckus in his first gathering at the Surrey Gardens Music Hall. And, and, and this whole disaster greatly affected Spurgeon. I mean, for uh, he felt personally responsible for what had happened. I mean, if, if it wasn't for him, crowds wouldn't have gathered. He was plunged deep into depression. The newspapers weren't helping. Here's, here's the vogue of the newspapers of the day. One newspaper said that Mr. Spurgeon would bully the crowds into religion, calling him a ranting charlatan who utters vile blasphemies. Another newspaper said that anybody collecting money in a public place without a license should be treated as rogues and vagabonds. Like all of a sudden, they need to get licensed to be able to take it up an offering. But here's what Spurgeon said. Of course, there was an inquest, verdict, accidental death on the whole, the only safe conclusion to arrive at. A fund was raised for the sufferers and all was done that lay in the power that lay in the power of our people to help the injured. Our friends were crushed in spirit, but not driven from their faith or love, nor divided from their youthful minister. I was for a short time incapable of mental effort. Who could not be? How great a trial to have a number of one's hearers killed or maimed. A word about the calamity and even the sight of the Bible brought me to a flood of tears and utter distraction of mind. I mean, this just came upon Spurgeon like a, a huge flood. He found a, a spirit of darkness in him for weeks and months and even years to come. This feeling of depression lingered on so that even decades later, whenever there were intense crowds pressing in upon him, he would flash back to that terrible night at Surrey Gardens Music Hall and he would find great difficulty preaching. And Spurgeon would later write, I thank God that terrible as that great catastrophe was, there was never in my experience another one like it. For I do not think that I could have survived a second one. Well, one of the texts that helps Spurgeon out of his depression is our text this morning, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. And, and I want to read a quote from his wife, Susanna Wesley. And then we'll read the scripture in context of what Susanna Wesley is saying, because she, she points it there about how this text helps Spurgeon out of his depression from this great catastrophe. Susanna says this, I was in the garden of a house belong. It was in the garden of a house belonging to one of the deacons in the suburbs of Croydon, where my beloved had been taken and hoped that the change in quiet would be beneficial and that the Lord was pleased to restore his mental equilibrium and unloose the bars which had kept his spirit in darkness. We'd been walking together as usual, he restless in anguish, and I sorrowful and amazed, wondering what the end of these things would be when at the foot of the steps which gave access to the house, he stopped suddenly and turned to me. And with an old sweet light in his eyes, ah, how grievous had been the absence. He said, dearest, how foolish I have been. Why, what does it matter what becomes of me if the Lord would be glorified? And then he repeated with eagerness and intense emphasis, Philippians chapter 2, 
verses 9 through 11. Let's read it now. For this reason also, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Spurgeon then said, If Christ be exalted, he said, and his face glowed with a holy fervor, let him do as he pleases with me. And my one prayer shall be that I may die to self and live holy for him and for his honor. Oh, wifey, I see it all now. Praise the Lord with me. In that moment, Susanna writes, his fetters were broken. The captives came forth from the dungeon and rejoiced in the light of the Lord. The son of righteousness arose once more upon him with healing in his wings. And God helped him. Now he still struggled for, for years to come. But Philippians 2, 9 through 10 was the window through which Spurgeon's depression was helped to fade away. And he was able to preach again. He was incapacitated even to preach after this happened for some time. Now, here's what I find curious. Is that Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, have, has nothing to do with depression. It doesn't hint at it. It doesn't speak about it. It doesn't give any type of application to solve depression. And yet, this is how God works and this is how His Word works. You simply hear it. Or read it, or Spurgeon's case, meditate on it and think on it, and somehow, some way, God uses this tangential text to come into your life and to help solve the problems that you are dealing with. As He applies it to your wounded heart. And maybe you're here this morning, struggling with something that I know nothing about that other people know nothing about. Maybe your family knows about it. Maybe some close friends know about it. Maybe it's unknown. Maybe, maybe you're struggling today with depression. Maybe there are financial challenges or, or health difficulties or relational conflicts or concerns for your children or worries about the future or, or maybe even a hundred other possibilities that I can't even think of or don't even know about. Please know the power of the Word of God to help you in your distress. Please know the power of this text to help you today. What's the text about? Well, simply put, it's about the exaltation of Jesus. That's the title of my message today. The exaltation of Jesus. That is the, the lifting up of Jesus. And my trust this morning is simply this. As I proclaim how Jesus was lifted up, that God would comfort your hearts. That God would enlarge your souls that God would heal your hurts, that God would give you a perspective on your problems in ways that's far beyond anything I can ever do. My, my hope and prayer this morning is this, that even if you would tell me of your struggles and difficulties and problems, and, and I, I can't, and I think about it and I ask you questions, I figured out that, that my counsel to you would be something I think may be helpful and good, but I'm praying that, that just seeing Jesus lifted up would do far more good than any counsel that I could give you this morning. Because there's a way in which knowing the big picture of the universe, Jesus is on His throne, the universe is not spun out of control, 
is a, is a thing that can help you in your problems, in your trials today. So may the Lord comfort us, comfort you this morning. So in fact, I just want to take this time right now and pray. So we take this text and just look at it. Father, I would pray that you would take these words which are so, um, so lofty. And, and words are hard to express what it means that Jesus was lifted high above every name that's named. How, how, how can we imagine that? How can we understand that? God, other than that you are over everything. And I pray, Lord, as, as we even look to this text, may you in your spirit, God, help, help us to humble us. God, create a unity among us, as Philippians 2 is talking about. Help us with perspective, God, through the, the various trials that, that come upon us, the troubles that have assailed us. God, so may you be with us as we simply open these words. May you draw us to Jesus. God, may our heart's affection come to love Him in greater ways than ever before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verses 9 through 11 is really a, a culmination of an argument that started in verse 5, which actually is, is how people ought to seek and pursue unity in the church. There was the exhortation, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's the exhortation, right? To be humble like Jesus. The humiliation comes in verses 6 through 8. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And with the exhortation to be humble like Christ, with the humiliation of Jesus, now comes the exaltation of Jesus, 9-11. through 11. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, I've broken this text down just into three simple points. Trying to be as simple as I can be this morning. First point, first half of verse 9 is the reason. The reason for the exaltation of Jesus. Verse 9 reads, For this reason also God highly exalted Him. That draws us back to verses 6-8 through eight we looked at last week. Because of the humiliation of Jesus, He experienced the exaltation. For this reason. For what reason? He was humbled. Right, He had a humble heart, not regarding, verse 6, equality with God, something to be grasped, but, but willing to, to let it go and willing to be a man. Jesus lived a humble life, taking the form of a bondservant, willing to go and help those in need, stooping to serve His disciples. Because Jesus died a, a humble death, even death on a cross, enduring the pain, despising the shame. For these reasons... Because he had a humble heart and a humble life and a humble death, God highly exalted him. Now, that might seem a bit strange. How is it that you connect the humiliation of Jesus with the exaltation? In fact, how is it that the humiliation of Jesus becomes the cause for the exaltation of Jesus? Because that's what it says. It says, for this reason. 
for the reason that Jesus humbled himself. Well, God works differently than we do. God's economy is different than our economy. So think about this. In God's economy, death is the path to life. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow after me. Take up your cross. That means to die. You need to be willing to die to live. Or, or this, in God's economy, to save your life, you must lose it. Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. The, the way to save your life is actually to lose your life. To, to let it go. Be lost to yourself. And thereby you will save it. In God's economy, giving is the path to receiving. Give and it will be given to you is what Jesus said. It's what the Old Testament principle in Proverbs 11 verse 24 says. There's one who scatters, right? He's generous. He just gives away. And he increases all the more. And what takes place in our text is that the way up is down. Okay? Maybe here's an illustration for some of you kids if you've seen Lightning McQueen. And what's that movie called? Cars. I was talking with Doc Hudson. I just remember, right? That he says, oh, then turn left, you turn right. Right? When you're skidding out somehow, he just says, oh, if you want to go right, you turn left. You remember that, kids? None of you remember it. That's okay. I just remember that. It's like, how, how does that work? And I don't even think it really works in real life, what he was saying. But in this text, it is. The way up is down. The path to exaltation is first and foremost humiliation. Peter said it straight out. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you at the proper time. 1 Peter 5.6 James says the same thing. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Jesus said it in parable form. He, he was invited to dinner one time with a, one of the leading Pharisees at His house. And He noticed how all these people were seeking jockeying for the best seat at the dinner table. And Jesus said this, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then you in disgrace will go and occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. And then the principle, Luke 14.11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's what we see here with Jesus. He humbled himself, and God exalted him. The way up is down. Now, notice in all these instances where I quoted Peter, James, or Jesus, that those who humble themselves are always exalted by the Lord. See, the humble don't lift themselves up. Rather, it's the Lord who lifts them up. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. And that's exactly what we see here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason, right, because of the humiliation of Jesus, God highly exalted Him. And this is the way it must be because humble people won't lift themselves up. It takes another to come along and exalt them and lift them up. And we see the Lord doing this all over the Scripture. Abraham was a humble man. He said to the Lord, I am but dust and ashes. 
But God exalted Abraham to be the father of many nations. God exalted Moses. It says in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, that he was the most humble man ever to walk the earth. And when people began to grumble and complain against him, the anger of the Lord burned against them and God dished out the leprosy. And God put others to an early death, lifting up Moses as the leader in Israel. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a humble woman. When she heard what the Lord was doing, was going to do through her, she responded and said this, He has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. She called herself a humble bond slave, a servant of the Lord. She said, God, is, God has been gracious. He had guard, regard for me. When Jesus told the parable of the publican and the Pharisee, it was the man who beat his chest in sorrow, was unwilling even to lift up his eyes towards heaven and pleaded before the Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the humble man who went at home justified. Right? God lifted up and exalted that man. Don't, don't miss the connection between humility and the blessing of God. See, it's the poor in spirit who are blessed by the Lord. It's the gentle who will inherit the earth. It's the merciful who will receive mercy. It's those who have been persecuted who will be blessed. In fact, even when notorious sinners repent, God looks upon them. When they humble themselves. And maybe even not to salvation, but just even practically with life. Like Ahab. You remember Ahab? Ahab's wife's name was, help me now, Jezebel, and he wanted this vineyard, Naboth's vineyard, and Naboth refused to sell it to him. And so Jezebel said, oh, my husband wants that vineyard. Naboth won't sell it. So she said Naboth killed killed him, said, here you go, Ahab, take your vineyard. And he engaged in that, was a, a wicked man. In fact, even 1 Kings 21-25 says, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. A wicked, wicked king. And yet... Listen to 1 Kings 21-29. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? There was partial repentance in his life. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. So, God determined because of his wickedness, God's going to punish right this house. But because Ahab showed a measure of humility, God says, because he humbled himself, I'm just going to delay that judgment till he dies, and then I'll judge his sons. Just, you even see that, that even someone who's wicked, even if they express some humility, God will be gracious, because that's, to, that's the one to whom God looks. Isaiah 66, verse 2, to this one I will look, God says, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And what was true of Abraham and Moses, what was true of Mary, and to some extent Ahab, was certainly mostly true of, of Jesus. Because his humility was the greatest humility ever displayed on the planet. <clears throat> I mean, becoming a man was enough. But becoming a servant is more. And becoming one to die for our sins, well, that's... That's just utter, complete humility on behalf of Jesus. But, but see, that's the whole reason why he went to the highest place. Because the humility of Jesus was the most ever. The exaltation of Jesus is the highest that anyone has ever been exalted. So my second point, the first 
First half of verse nine tells us the reason for the exaltation. Now we get the reality of the exhortation. Verse nine. And God bestowed on he highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. This verse speaks about how the father responded to the humility of the son. God highly exalted him and then bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Gave Jesus this name which is above every name. The name there refers to authority. Gave Jesus authority over over any other authority that there is. Now, these words are difficult to explain because they're so high and, and lofty. And even, I think, Paul groped for words. When, when he said that God highly exalted him, literally in the text, it's huper uposin. Huper, which means, some of you guys might say uber, right? What does uber mean? What? I mean, great. Super. Right? Huper. Super. God super exalted him. That's how Jesus said it. He said he uber exalted him. Now, we know how to supersize our fries and our drinks and our coffees. But how do you supersize the exaltation of Jesus? Well, you just say Jesus is highest you can go. I mean, in this world, men can become presidents and prime ministers and kings. And they can rule and reign. But their rule and reign is over only one nation. They maybe can try to go to war to get another nation, which they rule and reign over. Maybe four or five nations they can rule or reign over. But nobody reigns over the entire world. But such does Jesus. He's been given the name which is above every name. The name of Jesus is higher than any name, not only in our country, but in every country of the world and in every country of the world combined. The name of Jesus is above every name, not only in our time, but in all the time that came before and all the time that will come after us. The name of Jesus is higher than anyone. And not only in our country, in our, our time, but in our, not only in our realm is the name of Jesus even more but in the angelic and demonic realm as well, the name of Jesus is higher. There are leaders in the spiritual realm which are beyond this world and none of them is higher than Jesus. Not Lucifer, nor any of his demons, not Michael, nor any of his fellow angels. Simply put, Jesus Christ, the name and authority of him is higher than anybody who has ever existed, any intelligent being, whether it's in this realm or the spiritual realm, Jesus is higher and rules over all. If there's any doubt to the divinity of Jesus, this verse has to solve it all. To say He's just an angel? No, He's far above the angels. It says in Hebrews 1, right, He's been given a more excellent name than they. In fact, Hebrews 1, 3 and 4, when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels. He has inherited a more excellent name than they. And Hebrews 1.8 speaks about how the throne of Jesus is forever and ever. Ephesians 1, we read, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Right To seat Him at His right hand is a place of, of, of power. 
and authority. That's the idea of giving Him this name far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. You see there, power, rule, authority, dominion, name. That's just what name means. It means authority. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, right? In the authority of Jesus, we're, we're trusting our, our prayers to His power and His authority. Not only in this age, Paul continues, he, Ephesians 1, verse 21, not only now, but also in the age to come, He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. We as the church march to the beat of one drummer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign ruler of the church. He's the sovereign ruler over all. G. Campbell Morgan tried to describe this, saying that Jesus has been exalted to the place of infinite and unfading glory the right hand of God. Jesus has been exalted to the place of rest where weariness never comes, to the place of power where weakness is never known, to the place of glory where there's no shadow cast by turning and dark, no darkness. That's where Jesus has been exalted to. And it's not, it's not just that Paul came up with this theology on his own in Philippians 2. This is Old Testament. Psalm 110. Do you know that psalm? The most quoted psalm in the New Testament? The Messianic psalm in which the Lord God is speaking with the Messiah, second person of the Trinity, saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's where Jesus is now. He's seated right now. This is the reality of it. He's seated right now at the right hand of God the Father. And, and though He has all rule and all authority... He's waiting for the day to unleash that power. He will unleash His second coming when He comes to rule and reign in His kingdom. Listen to Psalm 110, verse 2. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. There is command from God the Father to God the Son, saying, Go rule in the midst of your enemies. In that day, He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. It's talking about Jesus Christ. talking about the Messiah. talking about this humble man from Nazareth who lived some 2,000 years ago. We, we can read about Him in the Gospels. We can read about Him in His humanity, in His humility. We see Him dying upon the cross, weak and despised and lightly esteemed. But there's been this change because that's what Jesus did on earth in his humiliation. But now the change has been that God lifted him up and he has been super exalted far above all authority and every name that's been named. So Peter preached this on the day of Pentecost. He said, he quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the conclusion of his sermon on Pentecost was this. Therefore, know and let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The name Lord implies that He is, he is above all and over all. And He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And it may be that the world doesn't look like Jesus is reigning today. It's only because of His patience allowing rebellion. But someday His patience will end and Jesus will return. That Lamb that lived on the earth and died a sacrificial death will appear as the Lion of Judah and will exert all authority that is in His hand who put all His enemies beneath His feet. 
You might liken this as uh, the mothers having a hard time with their children at home. And throughout the day, they've been disobedient, not listening to her, and they're out of control, and she doesn't know how to handle the situation, and then she says those words, well, just wait till your father comes home. So what's happening. Dad's off at work. He's not lost his authority. Right? He's still got the headship in the house. He's still got the authority. But it's not being exercised at that moment because all is pandemonium and chaos. And the mother just says, just wait. And what's going to happen when the father comes home? When the father comes home, if he's a good father, he'll set everything straight. And all will be in control. And all will be happy in the home. I think that's what's like with Jesus. He's been exalted. He's above all rule and authority. But he's not exerting that. But there's a day that will come where he will exert all of that authority. That's what I'm saying. This is the reality. This is the reality. Paul describes that day in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 28. Then comes the end. When Jesus hands over the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and authority and power. So right, when Jesus takes all that away, takes it all to Himself, for He must reign until He put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for He has put all things in subjection under His feet. And then Paul thinks about the Trinitarian concept here and he says, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjected to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. And there you just even see Trinitarian submission. And of course, that Jesus is a name above every name, but yet still in the mystery of the Trinity, he still is submissive to God the Father. How it works, I don't, I don't know. But I know that Jesus is far exalted above anything that we can know. And I, I'm just saying, this is reality. You may not see it now. You may not believe it now. But my friend, it's true. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He is ruling with all authority right now. And that leads me really to my last point. We see the reason for the exaltation of Jesus, the reality of the exaltation of Jesus, and now the result of the exaltation of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 10. So that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So notice how verse 10 begins. It begins with, so that, that's a purpose clause. This is the reason why Jesus has been so exalted. This is the reason why Jesus infinitely humbled Himself to be infinitely exalted so that so that every knee would bow and so that every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you know the worship chorus? He is Lord. Help me now, my bad soloist. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So it's talking about here. He is Lord. 
He's risen from the dead and He's Lord. And every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He came in humiliation. That He would experience exaltation. That the whole earth would worship Him. That's what the act of bowing the knee is all about. It's an act of worship. And notice how all-inclusive this worship is. It says here in verse 10, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. As you're seated this morning right here in the pews, right? I know you guys are you're, you're seated, right? 90 degrees. I'm not, I don't have a chair after I'd sit in a chair. Just look at your knees. Just look at them. They will bow to Jesus Christ. Everyone, all of your knees will bow. Just, just maybe look down the, down the pew and look at other people's knees. They all will bow. Alright, let's use some imagination. Think of yourself in a, in a crowded place. Say, shopping in a shopping mall during Christmas time. Say, at a, at a concert or a, or a football match. Right? Something where you see all these crowds, all these people walking around. Every knee that you see or imagine will bow to Jesus Christ someday. Now I want you to think about foreign lands. Those who look differently than you, those who talk differently than you, picture them just out walking about. Every single one of those knees will bow to Jesus as well. So verse 10 is talking about at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee. Then he gives three realms. Those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Well, we get the heaven part, right? It's a reference, I believe, to the angels, those who died in faith with Jesus now. Those knees will bow. But it also speaks about those on earth. I think that's a reference to us, everyone alive today. And this under the earth, I believe, is a reference to demons and the unsaved in hell. Even the demons and the unsaved in hell will bow their knee to Jesus Christ. In verse 11, we see it's not only knees that will bow, but it's tongues that will speak and confess. The Lordship as well. Verse 11, And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now again, I want you to reflect upon your tongues. I don't want you to spit them out at me because that would be a little rude. Okay, But just swish them around your mouth. right? They, they would allow you to speak. Know that someday that tongue in your mouth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, I want you to think about people in your pew. They don't stick your tongue out at each other, but just think about their tongues. Everyone up and down the pew. Their tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. I want you to think about a crowd. I want you to picture them talking. So, so maybe picture a crowd like this mingling. Maybe an after church fellowship like we do in the family room there. Or maybe some wedding reception. Right? Or, or maybe some crowd, some, some big event, and they're talking before they, they get into the venue. Or, or maybe people at the fair as they're just talking around. Every tongue that you see in your mind talking, out of its lips will come, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the one sentence that will be said by every being on the planet that's ever lived. Now I want you to think about your television. 
every newscaster, every announcer. Think about movies you've seen, every actor, every actress. I want you to think about your radio and, and think about every host or every voice of advertisement. At some point in the future, every voice that you have ever heard in any kind of media will say those words, Jesus Christ is Lord. I want you to think about foreign lands. They're funny languages. I want you to think about the untold billions alive today. At some point in the future, in their own language, they will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, here's the reality that not all will do so willingly. Because not everyone who bows the knee on that day will bow willingly, right? Psalm 110 speaks about how He's going to rule and crush and subdue enemies. You can read in Revelation 16 when God's pouring out His wrath of the bulls, they still were unrepentant and they, they angered, they threw their feet at God and blasphemed God's name. But God will, will bow the knee just like an older brother will take a younger brother and force him to say uncle. God will dominate the peoples of the earth. Jesus will dominate the peoples of the earth. And not everyone who confesses Jesus as Lord will say it with a willing heart either. But every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Because there are people who have not believed in the name of Jesus and they will go to hell for their lack of faith. But this says here that He's so highly exalted every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And I think the idea is, is this. It's, it's a little bit, um, you know, when a sovereign dictate, maybe Hitler comes overtakes Germany and everyone is Heil Hitler, right? He's the Master. He's the Lord. They'll be forced to say that. And they will acknowledge it. There'll be no question that Jesus is Lord. They will say it. They will confess His Lordship. And if they've not believed, they will confess His Lordship even on their way to hell. The question this morning... Paul Peterson and I worked over this text a couple of weeks ago. Paul said, oh, here's a great thing. How will you bow? Is that what you said? Are those your words exactly right? How will you bow? Are you going to bow willingly? Or are you going to be forced to bow? How will you confess? Will you confess willingly? Or will you be forced to confess? You know, we got a dog a couple of years ago. And... Um, We've had some problems with it, and most part, she's been a good dog, and she's she's grown in my heart. Okay, slowly. You know, by the time I, I really like love her, it's going to be time when she's you know she's old and cranky and she dies, and then it'll be a hard time. But anyway, she's about three years old, and we did take her to a trainer one time, and the trainer was kind of teaching us how how to keep her on a leash and things like that. I remember. One time, this, this command for dogs probably down. You guys probably all know this. You may have your dog people down. You'll just put your hand on the dog's back and go down. And uh, that's never happened to Autumn before. And this dog trainer forced her down and Autumn's like, ah! you're barking and stuff. And he said, I don't think that's ever happened to her before, has it? We're like, no, we haven't ever done that before. Just forcing her down because he's the ruler. The dog needs to obey. The dog needs to understand who's in charge here. And that will take place with Jesus. Jesus will force people to their knee to bow and acknowledge because He is the ruler and the reigner. And, and so just I want you to think about how you will bow, how you confess. 
Now, I know that many of us here this morning are bowing and confessing right now. And so in that day, we will gladly bow. We will gladly confess, yes, Jesus is Lord. And we're doing that today to the, to the glory of God. We've sung that. Yes, he's Lord. Every knee will bow. And I'm bowing to him right now. I've given him my all. I have found my life because I've lost it. I'm, I'm, I'm living because I've died to myself. And that is not a problem. When Jesus returns, we can smile when our kind Lord comes to rule and reign on us. And our worship that we experience today will continue throughout all eternity. But I suspect there's some here who have not bowed the knee to Jesus. Maybe some children. Maybe some adults. Maybe played the, the religious game. Right? Because I'm not just talking about just, just genuflecting your knee to Jesus once. I'm not talking about just uttering the mere words out of your mouth. Boy, if words alone could save, what a wonderful thing. We just knock door to door and say, um, can, you, can you just do me a favor? Can you just repeat after me? Right? Uh, I believe in Jesus Christ, Lord of heaven and earth. Can you say that? Oh, yes, you said that. Wonderful. You're good. Okay, next door. It's not about just, just what comes out of the mouth. It's whether what comes out of the mouth is genuine from the heart. It's not, it doesn't matter whether you physically bow to Jesus or not. It's whether your heart is inclined to do that. So that when he says, bow low to me, you'll be like, yes, Lord, sure, I will bow to you. Paul said it this way in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. See, it's the heart that trumps the outward confession. It's the heart that comes in confessing Jesus as Lord. Likewise, the bending of the knee needs to come from a broken spirit. It's broken people who are prostrate before the Lord. And maybe you're here this morning and just gone through religious exercises, but there's been nothing of the heart. I just encourage you now, in light of the fact that, that, that Jesus is ruler, exalted above every name ever, I think He's the one you want to bow to. He's the one you want to give supreme allegiance to. Because if you have a problem with a, a lesser ruler, Jesus will take care of that. Now, in writing these words, Paul didn't merely just come up with them on his own. Right? Verse 9 is Psalm 110. You can feel that coming through here. And verses 10 and 11... Coming through from Isaiah 45. I want to finish our message this morning by going to Isaiah 45. So turn in your Bibles back. Old Testament, Isaiah 45. I want to begin reading in verse 18. It's a great section here. It's talking about how God's going to save Israel. The future someday. But right now, there's pursuing a lot of uh, gods and idols. He says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Here's what God says. Psalm Isaiah 45, verse 18. I am the Lord and there's no one else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God that cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? 
Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, here it comes. The word has gone forth from my mouth and righteousness will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. I began my message this morning talking about Charles Spurgeon and the great catastrophe that he had. If you know anything about Spurgeon, we hit verse 22. You know that that verse held a special place in his heart. Verse 23 is where, where Philippians 2 comes from, right? At the end there, that every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance, right? And Paul's adding that. Every knee is going to bow to God. Every tongue swearing allegiance to Him. Swearing, confessing He's Lord. But verse 22 was the words that God used to save Charles Spurgeon. January 6, 1856, he preached a message entitled Sovereignty and Salvation. His text was Isaiah 45, verse 22. It says in the King James, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And he began the sermon with these words. Picture the packed crowd. He says, Six years ago today, as near as possible, at this very hour of the day, I was in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity, but had yet, by divine grace, been led to feel the bitterness of that bondage and to cry out by reason of the soreness of its slavery, seeking rest and finding none, I stepped within the house of God and sat there afraid to look upward, lest I should be utterly cut off and lest His fierce wrath should consume me. The minister rose in his pulpit, as I have done this morning, read the text, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And I looked that moment, the grace of faith was vouchsafed, vouchsafed to me in the selfsame instance. And now I think I can say with truth, ere since by faith I found the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Spurgeon says, I shall never forget that day while memory holds its place, nor can I help repeating this text whenever I remember that hour when I first knew the Lord. How strangely gracious, how wonderfully and marvelously kind that he who heard these words so little time ago for his own soul's profit should now address you this morning as his hearers from the same text in full and confident hope that some poor sinner within these walls may hear the glad tidings of salvation for himself also and may today on this 6th of January be turned from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. That's my hope this morning. That is, Paul has expounded verse 23 in Isaiah 45 that the invitation of 22 would come. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no one else. This was precious to Spurgeon. It helped him get through depression like what happened at the Surrey Gardens Music Hall. In fact, 20 years later, Spurgeon again went to the same text, began with these words, says, I've preached a good many times from this text, Isaiah 45, verse 22, and I hope to do so if my life is spared many, many more times. It was about 26 years ago, 26 years exactly last Thursday, that I looked unto the Lord and found salvation through this text. 
And he goes on just to explain just that that day again when he went to a primitive Methodist church and there was a lay preacher who stood up and Spurgeon was sitting just right over there. We've been to the place of on. There's a plaque on the wall. He says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon with about 20 people there was saved and converted from his sins and he never stopped proclaiming the redeeming grace of God. So I don't know how the exaltation of Jesus has caught you today. But I just say look to him and be saved. His humiliation brought his exaltation. That's the reason. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That is the reality. And the result is that we all ought to worship him. So let's pray and worship the Lord. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. And in the Lord, the Lord alone is righteousness and strength, O God. And it's to You, O Lord, that we look. We look this day to You, God, the One who is ruling and reigning the universe. We look to Jesus as He who is above all rule and authority and power. And and I pray that today we would find comfort in our hearts, that Jesus in full control find ourselves bowing willingly, confessing with our heart that Jesus is Lord. You have made Him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom the Jews crucified 2,000 years ago. We thank You for the cross. Thank You for the price You paid. God, now we know forgiveness and grace. We thank You for the cross. And Lord, I would pray that as we are done with this section of Philippians 2, that it might bear forth fruit in humility among us. That we might model the humility of Jesus. At some point, trusting God or exaltation that You will do that in Your time, in Your way. Perhaps not in this life. Perhaps after this life is when Jesus obtained His exaltation. God, that we'd be constantly deferring to others. Seeking their interests, not ours. Lord, that You would form a unity among us which could never be broken. God, and thereby making the joy pastor and leadership complete. God, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same heart, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So God, help us in these things. God, may may these words written 2,000 years ago still come to our hearts and find fruition in the way that we act and live. We want to see Jesus high and lifted up, seated on the throne. God, be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.